in a way is inspired by a uh, a way of looking, or two ways one could say, of looking at spiritual practice. But, um, and particularly wanting to investigate one side of that. And we could perhaps look at spiritual practice and say that um, it's essentially about fixing a problem, overcoming a difficulty, which um, in the Buddhist tradition we'd probably call suffering, i.e. getting rid of it, fixing it, whatever. And yet there's another way we can look at spiritual practice that we can understand what it is that we do here. And this is much more in the sense of understanding our practice and the process of our life as a as a as an exploration and as the um, <coughs> the penetration of a mystery, the seeking to actually solve and understand that which we do not know, do not understand, and it's of this this second approach to spiritual practice that what it might mean to view our practice as the the, the penetration into the, the possibility of discovering something mysterious of understanding something beyond that which we currently understand. And sometimes it's perhaps helpful and powerful for us in our practice to just reflect a little on indeed how mysterious is the very place we find ourselves right now. Right here we sit on our cushion in this room we, we find that we're actually conscious, we're aware of experiences arising, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, occasional breath, <coughs> usually no shortage of thoughts, emotions, and yet all of that arising into consciousness, we're aware of it, and we never, sometimes we, we forget to stop and just recognize that we don't actually know how it's happening. We don't actually know what's going on in this process. We can describe it in a certain way. We can observe the process. We can say it's this happening and then that happening and then another thing. We can, we can look inside ourselves and see certain patterns and tendencies and processes unfolding. We can look around ourselves and equally again we see patterns and processes, predictable sort of occurrences and sometimes unpredictable ones. And yet the larger question of how it came to be that all this is happening in the first place, this is completely beyond us. This is out of the range of our mind, it seems. How we came to be here, how this world came to be here, this is a profound mystery. And Sometimes when we, we look, we see here we are in a body, in a mind, with a mind that we didn't choose, we aren't in control of, we've discovered to our horror, and it just appeared one day, and some other day it's going to be gone. And we, we can somewhat seem, sometimes perhaps feel a little bemused or befuddled by this, if, we, if we're willing to just let ourselves stay with that reality. And and in this sort of, in a way, connecting with the unknown element of our experience, of our life, I think, and in reflecting also upon how much it is that we don't actually know, that we can't provide a, a watertight, foolproof answer for, how much of that there is in our life, when we reflect on this, when we connect with this, it's actually very powerful in our practice. 
very powerful in our lives. If we just allow ourselves to really come face to face with the vastness of it all, the vastness of the sky, blue or cloudy, starlit at night perhaps, and the vastness of that, if we just allow our mind to open to it, we and we don't reduce it. We don't sort of say, oh, that's just the sky, or this is just the planet Earth, which is a concept. We don't bring that experience down into an idea and say, that's what it is, and believe it. Which is rather incredible that we seem to do this all the time. We say, oh, it's one of those. This is a, um, a plant. That's what it is. I know what it is. It's a plant. And how it is that that arises from the Earth, I certainly couldn't explain, let alone so much more of everything else. To see, when we don't bring our experience, when we don't limit it by attaching a concept to it, and the concept has its place, but not limiting our experience to just that concept, not saying that's it, not believing that the concept actually can grasp it and define it in any absolute or ultimate way. When we, when we can actually do that, when we can stand under the starlit sky, uncomprehending, we are both exalted by that experience and by our participation in it and equally humbled by our smallness and our perhaps insignificance in the face of it all, in the face of that vast mystery, which we are part of. It's not happening somewhere outside of ourselves. It's equally happening within us. Have you ever wondered how it is that when you eat a piece of food, eventually it ends up being part of your body? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, certainly one doesn't know how to do that, or perhaps a degree in biochemistry might give you some idea of it, but ultimately, even with that, it's rather unfathomable. And in that, in a way, that sense of being both humbled and exalted by the mystery of life. There's a, there's a way in which we we can learn what it means to embrace the unknown, to actually learn to rest in a spirit of not knowing. And it has been said, and I think rightly so, that to rest in not knowing is one of the great arts of the spiritual life. It is one of the great arts which we explore, which we cultivate in practice. And yet we do see that our habit, our tendency, is to meet our world, to meet our experience, to meet ourselves from the concepts, from the ideas which we have, from the views and the opinions, the beliefs which we have heard from others, read in books, or perhaps occasionally come to in a moment of creative um, originality by ourselves. And yet, all these concepts, all these ideas, we so often look at them as though they were the reality of the situation, as though that was really what the truth of the matter was, our description, our idea, our image. And yet, if we reflect a little bit about, upon this, all the images, all the knowledge, all the concepts that we carry, they're all founded on the past. They all come out of previous experience, sometimes not even our experience, in fact, someone else's who's passed it on to us. And in our culture, there's a vast amount of information recorded on pieces of paper, on magnetic tape, on computer sort of chips, however the heck they do that. 
all this information, so much of it, and yet it's all coming out of the past. It's all, in a way, history. It really can't in itself define or capture the truth of where we are in any moment. But much of the knowledge that we have may have its value, may serve in particular situations, and at times it is appropriate that we actually seek for more, that we explore, deepening our, um, in a way, reservoir of information, perhaps about our inner processes, where our vulnerabilities are, where our strengths are, and appropriately so that we come to understand these. Understanding the way of the world, and how it functions, how it appears, how it disappears. Understanding that, and, and one can say this is useful, areas of knowledge that it's worth connecting with, it's worth exploring and one could say accumulating and yet always bearing in mind just perhaps a pinch of humility with that knowledge, understanding that in itself it's just ideas, it's not the reality which it seeks to describe and it never can be and that so often on the basis of our knowledge, our information that we have, that we take to be the truth, we then go another step forward and we make an assumption based upon it. We think, because this is the way it has been in the past, therefore this is the way it will be in the future. And we believe it as though it's the truth. Now sometimes, of course, the past does reveal to us something about the future. But more often than not, in fact, it does not tell us what will happen next. It will not tell us what will happen in the next moment, or the next sitting, or the next lifetime. And that yet our tendency to make assumptions and believe them, if we really looked into our minds and questioned how many assumptions am I carrying? How many things am I believing as though they were the truth, which in fact I do not know to be true? How many things? How many ideas have you had about even whether one would enjoy this talk or not? Whether one would have a good sitting or not? All those ideas based on the past. And yet when we believe in them, when we invest in them, when we give them weight, they can define and at times control the quality of our experience. Because they, they bring a weight, they bring a, a deadening weight onto our experience that we no longer meet it with the freshness to really explore, to see just what it is, what it actually is, not what we think it is or think it might be. And that what we find, what we discover is that really the, the bottom line of knowledge, that in terms of really significant and perhaps fundamentally reliable knowledge in spiritual terms, we sort of come down to knowing that we were born and we're going to die. And we don't even know when. And, and we know that. That's one piece of information. Sometimes we don't, or we would rather not know that one. We'd rather know all sorts of other things. But that one we do know. And with regard to the experience in between those two poles of birth and death, the process that we call living that embraces both of them, Within that, we don't know what will happen, and yet we're often driven by anxiety, by fear, to seek to, to actually control what will happen, 
to organize and to order it according to what we wish. And that it's often that sense of knowing that we think we can predict what will happen in our life if we just do this or if we don't do that. We think what will ha- we can predict what will happen in the next sitting. If I just do exactly what I did in that last sitting when I had that beautiful blissful experience, then it'll happen again. We believe that that's the truth so easily, so often. And yet, what happens with it when we start to identify with that movement of, of, of control that comes out of fear and that's really carried by a sense of knowing what was, knowing what is, knowing what will be. That control gives us a false sense of security. That sense of knowing what will happen, wanting to know what will happen, very interesting in a leading a backpacking retreat in France uh, um, just four or five weeks ago now and no one actually knew what the schedule was basically they found out when we were going to walk that we were about to walk and they put on their packs and walked and when we were going to sit they found out that right now we're sitting and we got out our mats and sleeping bags and we sat and it was very interesting to watch over the time that it was okay for a day or two but after a while people realized that they might be about to go up a steep hill and they wanted to know What's the terrain going to be like today? Or will we get to sit after lunch? Or will we just walk straight on? And this movement of wanting to know, because with knowledge there's that sense of security, of safety, of predictability. And yet that safety, that security, that predictability, that knowledge appears to offer us. It only appears to offer us that. But even in that appearance, it actually has a sort of a a suffocating, a a stultifying or a stagnating effect upon our consciousness, upon our life. And if we come to the rather sad place where we're living continuously from the sense of that we already know, that there's nothing new to discover, that we're familiar with it all, it becomes a living death. It becomes a living death where we're not really experiencing anymore because the filter of the sense of knowing stands between us and our life. And yet, it's not easy to address this because there is the fear that drives us into that place of knowing. And sometimes it's fear of things that we have experienced, things that have been difficult, that have been painful, that we seek to avoid. And yet, equally, it can be the fear of the unknown itself, a place which can be uncomfortable to reside, to to rest in, that we fear sometimes the loss of control, we fear the loss of our sense of who we are, and that fear tends to have the effect of discouraging us when we identify with that fear, discourages us or sometimes blocks us from actually exposing ourselves to the sense of not knowing, to actually exposing ourselves to the unknown and the unfamiliar. And so we hold on to our ideas, we grasp them, we really want to believe that it's true, that we do know how things are. And it provides an illusion of security. But because that idea, that knowing, those beliefs don't actually accord with, don't actually capture the way things are and can't do, because it's alive, it's dynamic, and the language is always far too slow and far too old to ever grasp it. It's only an illusion. And yet, it's a sufficiently attractive illusion that when the Buddha 
described what were the four great attachments in life. And bearing in mind attachment as the prime root of suffering, the four great attachments being of great significance to that. But one of the four great, atta- great attachments is the attachment to views and opinions. The attachment that we have to our beliefs, to our ideas about the way things are, the way things should be, to our ideas about who we are, who we should be. And just for those who might be curious, the four great attachments are the attachment to sense pleasure, kind of familiar to us probably, attachment to views and opinions, attachment to rites and rituals, which is in a way the attachment to the idea that some thing or some practice is going to do it for us somehow, going to save us from life or from ourselves or from whatever. Um, And the fourth great attachment is the attachment to the view of self. So in those four great attachments there's the, the attachment to views and opinions. And we see how strongly we hold on to our to ourself, to our sense of who we are, how that's bound up with so closely with our ideas, with our beliefs. And that's often got a large part to play in that sense of who we are. It's what we actually believe, what we hold to be true. And we, we hold to our identifying with our, our body, with our sense of being this body or owning this body, with the thoughts with the emotions, we identify with them, we claim them to be who we are. And that through, a, in a way, a sort of a, a mixture of what we see as our body and what we feel as our thoughts and what we, what we feel as our emotions, what we think as our thoughts, in that way somehow this is who we are, we believe in that. And yet, what would it be to no longer believe in that? Not to take up some other belief, not to say, oh I don't have a self or you know, I've got this higher self, or you know, the Buddhists say this, and the sort of the Hindus say that, and the Christians say something else. And which one shall I decide on? Rather than saying we have to take up another position, what would it be to actually say to choose to commit to not taking a position on that? To say I don't know, I can't be sure. The question's a little bit bigger than any of the possible answers. When we're not bound by a fear of not knowing, when we're actually able to find a sense of comfort, of balance within that space of not knowing, when we're actually able to do that, it starts to open up possibilities. It starts to open pathways, to open doors, which perhaps had up until then been closed. Because of the closeness of our minds, the closeness, the contraction that comes from holding on to ideas, to our beliefs of what is true. Shunryu Suzuki once said, and I think a rather famous quote, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind there are few. And sometimes one has to be a little careful, I feel, in meditation practice, perhaps having done quite a few retreats or in the context of a longer retreat, one starts to feel one sort of knows it all, or even just knows quite a lot of it. That one's sort of familiar, one's figured it out, one's heard all the Dharma talks before, read, you know, heard all the instructions, read most of the books, and yeah, one's familiar with it. And yet, it's a corruption of that understanding to actually then say, to actually move beyond a genuine acknowledgement of what one has understood to a position of I know, 
and this is the end, this is the completion, the fulfillment of knowing that there is not yet more to explore, to discover that there is not yet the realm of the unknown to penetrate into more fully to rest in not knowing to discover what that means for us in our practice this is really to connect with what I think in its most profound sense of the, of the phrase to be called an open mind an open mind and Nyanaponika Sara a um, German born Sri Lankan monk who died recently once said and I was rather struck by this in his book The Heart of Buddhist Meditation he said true wisdom is always young and always near to the grasp of an open heart of an open mind which has painfully reached its height and earned its right to hear it a true wisdom is always young it's not something that's old it's not something that comes out of history it's something that's always born now it's as young as it can be true wisdom and it's close to the grasp of an open mind which has painfully reached its heights and earned its right to hear it and what it means that the mind be opened by a painful reaching of that height of openness is that it is actually a mind that has learned to let go of its ideas of its sense of knowing of its belief that it already has a grasp of truth in any ultimate or absolute way and that openness is actually what enables us that openness of mind is what enables our mind to actually be close to the touch of true wisdom so it's of some considerable significance now sometimes what we notice and we can see in our practice I think that we do meet objects we meet experiences at times from that sense of knowing and it's kind of useful to explore how that affects what occurs um, for instance we, we may just meet a fly or a fly might meet us as we're sitting perhaps eating our meal it lands on the plate and the first thought that arises is dirty disease threatening to my health perhaps and immediately we want to just push it away we want to get rid of it and maybe appropriately so and yet sometimes that the, the concept of dirty or if this might be a threat to me we might actually wish to kill it we might want to squash it so it can't threaten us or because it's dirty and we don't like it it's unpleasant for us and so quickly that reaction comes because we think we know what this is that's happened that we know this creature it's a fly flies are dirty we've all heard it before our mother told us our father told us whatever and yet what would it be to see that fly from a sense of not knowing what this is this creature just to see it's flying for starters which is pretty incredible if you've ever looked at the wings of a fly up close how, how it ever gets that body into the air on sort of what seem like two tiny pieces of glad wrap or we call it cling film in this country um, and that it's just whizzing around and one sees that perhaps its situation isn't that different to ours one might hear it buzzing at the window trying to fly through the glass and think I wish that fly would go away and yet we might see that it's it's trying to fly through a piece of glass it doesn't realize it's there and maybe that's a metaphor for some of the ways we act at times when we we think that if we can just get one more pleasant experience we'll be happy and we keep banging our head up against it not seeing that this is not the way out this is not the way through 
and that sometimes that sense of just stopping, resting for a moment, not jumping to that place of knowing what this is, allows the possibility for another response, perhaps a deeper, more heartfelt, more heartfelt response, for perhaps some wisdom, some kindness to shine upon that experience, upon that creature, upon that part of ourself which we might see arising that might look pretty scary, that we might think, oh, this is bad, I don't like this one, I want to get rid of it really quick. And yet if we just stop for a moment, don't presume we know what it is and just see, oh, what's this? It's thoughts, it's emotions, it's energy, it's movement, it's life, it's going on. It's, and perhaps if we meet it like that, we see by the time we've noticed all those things about it, it's already moved on. And again, that space that can come from not presuming to know that which is happening, not and I need to be careful here in the way I'm using the language because, of course, in being present we're saying know what's going on, understand what's going on, see what's going on, of course, all of that. And yet being aware of that, when we go a little too far with it, to that sort of rigidity, that fix, fixedness of mind that truly believes that we know all and everything about and reacts in relationship to that belief. And we might consider how we, how we move. When we would enter, and you might imagine entering a darkened room in someone's house that we know is full of furniture that we've never been in before. How might we move across that room if we had to? Probably very carefully, very mindfully. There's an almost effortless attention that comes when we don't know what we're going into. If we're familiar with the room, if we see it all, we're familiar with it, we just walk through it so quickly. But if we go into perhaps an unfamiliar social situation, and sometimes we have to be going more slowly, we don't know what we have to do. We don't know what's the right response. And equally in our practice, in our inner life, when we don't have that sense of, I know this, I'm familiar with this, I know everything there is to know about it, then I think it much more easily and sometimes naturally and effortlessly allows us to stop and just give it one or two, two more moments of attending, just to see, is there some more here to understand? And there might not be, maybe we have seen that one plenty of times, but at least we've given it the chance to just see a bit more deeply if there's more to it. And that that really carries and supports our mindfulness, our steadiness. That when we start to reach plateaus in practice where perhaps it's all kind of going along rather smoothly, rather steadily. The occasional blip up and down, but we've seen those happen a few times. A few times we realize there's no need to get too concerned about them. And yet they can just sometimes come sort of just a sort of a, just a, taking a little bit of distance out of that familiarity and perhaps an expression of the, the sort of the old proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. That actually when we're not familiar, when we don't come from that place of familiarity, there's much more respect for the experience, respect for what is happening, respect for what is possible in that moment. And so just be aware in yourself when you're taking, when you find a view forming, an idea, a belief system arising with that sense of, I know, that sense of I'm sure, that sense of this is really the way it is, really the way. Not like all those other theories that other people have which are pretty dubious, but this one's the real one. 
and particularly with regard to ourselves, with our sense of who we are, what we are. Incredibly powerful in practice to explore, to examine and perhaps to challenge our sense of who we are, our belief systems, our ideas about who we are. When we think we know who we are, we so easily take ourselves for granted. We don't leave any space, any opportunity for the possibility of growth, for the possibility of change. And we, we often find with ourselves or with another the, the value in, in not fixing and not placing someone in a box is what really allows us to keep that relationship fresh, to keep it growing, to keep, keep it alive. To not presume I know you, to not presume I know I or myself. When we believe we do, when we have this idea, as we often do, it easily generates conflict. We believe I'm a successful person, and yet we decide we're going to sit for two hours and we don't manage it. We have to give up after an hour and a half. And we've failed. What are we to do? We're a failure now, and yet sometimes we can't believe it because I'm sure I'm the kind of person who succeeds. I always do things I set out to do. And yet that's not the reality in that moment. Sometimes we we struggle with our experience because it's not in accord with who we believe ourselves to be. We we have a model and yet it doesn't correspond with our experience. And sometimes we actually fail to acknowledge and appreciate our positive qualities. As I was speaking a few days ago about the importance of that because we have a view of ourselves. For instance, that I'm a fearful person. And I can't believe it when I see myself acting with courage. So I just sort of just don't notice it somehow. I deny it. It's so easy that can happen. Because we're fixed in a belief. We actually don't open at times to very important and wonderful elements of ourselves, elements of our experience. And we tend to very easily notice all the things that go along with our ideas. We notice all the times, if I, as I said, using that example, if I believe I'm a fearful person, then I notice all the times that I'm really scared. And that every time I notice it, it affirms, it confirms my belief in who I am. It tells me, oh yeah, I was right, I really am a fearful person. And by being able to, by some sort of incredible capacity most of us seem to have, to totally not notice the times when it's the opposite when we're courageous, when we're strong, when we're resolute, we again reinforce our views, our beliefs. So there's a real degree of honesty that's asked there, that comes from that place of not knowing, that asks us to really see what it is now. And if we really acknowledge that we don't know who I am, that we don't know who someone else is, it brings something rather powerful and profound into our practice. It brings, I think, a quality of grace, a quality in which we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And there's a lovely story which I'd like to read, which I think speaks to this. And the story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries, and the rise of secularism in the 19th, all its all its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house, the abbot and four others, all over seventy in age. 
clearly it was a dying order. And in the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. And through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the monks had become a little bit psychic. So they always knew when the rabbi was there in his hut, and they would say to each other, the rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again. They would whisper. And so as the, the abbot was agonizing over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to him at one time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice which would save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut, but when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read parts of the Torah and quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there no advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I am sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving it, was something rather cryptic was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he could have meant. And in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes. If he meant anyone, he probably meant our father, Abbot. He has been our leader for more than a generation. But on the other hand, perhaps he could have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. And certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in people's sides, Elrod is virtually always right. He's almost right every time. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elrod, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, just a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for appearing just when you need him. He somehow magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't have meant me, could he? I mean, I'm just an ordinary person. But supposing he did? Suppose I am the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. 
And on the off-off chance that they themselves might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic on its tiny lawn, to walk along the paths, and even now and then to go into the old chapel and meditate and pray. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they started to sense this aura of extraordinary respect that surrounded the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the monastery. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling, about it. And hardly knowing why, they began to come back more often. They began to picnic, to play, to pray more frequently at the monastery. And they began to bring their friends to show them the special place. And their friends brought their friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he could join them. And then another, and another. And so, within a few years, the monastery had again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. perhaps in that story and how we might just reflect on for ourselves oh, you know, what would that question mean after ourselves you know, could it be the Messiah is among us here among us here could it be the Buddha is among us here and just entering not, not seeking to find an answer to that but entering into that place of not knowing allowing ourselves to rest in that place of not knowing it's incredibly powerful and what we see, together with our sense of, of letting go of a belief in who we are and what we are, equally the process of letting go of our ideas or our beliefs about what the truth of life is. Well, what is the ultimate reality which this practice invites us to discover? What is the fundamental liberating understanding that life reveals? Letting go of any sense we have of what that might be is equally powerful and profound as letting go of our sense of who we ourselves are. That teachings, spiritual teachings in all traditions point to something which lies beyond the realm of knowledge, beyond the realm of the mind, beyond the realm of concept. And I think they emphasize in different ways also the importance of not defining it, of not seeking to, in a way, grasp hold of that. In the Hebrew tradition, the, the old commandment to um, not take God's name in vain, it came out of, as I understand that I'm not a scholar on this, but came out of the, um, the initial sort of commandment to not actually speak God's name to not actually speak God's name and it was in fact God's name was denoted by a um, essentially unpronounceable combination of consonants um, 
that have been eventually sort of pronounced to say Yahweh or Yehovah, Jehovah, the more common vernacular perhaps. And yet to me, rather than it being about taking God's name in vain, which is often how it's said, to me much more what it points to is the danger of putting a name on that which is ultimate. Because when we put a name on it, then we suddenly think we know what it is. We grasp it, and we can see the effect of that grasping of the idea that I know what God is in some expressions of spiritual practice or religious behavior. We see the Taoist tradition, the enjoinder in the Tao Te Ching from Lao Tzu. The real Tao cannot be spoken. That which can be spoken is not the real Tao. And we, we have the image again from Taoism of, of the receptive mind, of the mind that's open to understanding, as the, the, the uncarved block, that it has all the potential to become something. But when we fix it through knowledge, when we carve our mind into a shape through the holding onto knowledge, its receptivity is lost or eroded. And we see in the Muslim tradition that they have no pictures, no symbols of Allah. They're not permitted. And not in the mosque, not on the Quran. And again, one might reflect, what might this mean? And I know little at all, at, uh, unfortunately, about Islam. But again, it just points to me, oh, perhaps there's some understanding here about the value of not fixing an image, not fixing that idea into something. But the, um, the, the Christian tradition also produces the um, the iconoclastic movement in the medieval years. Again, I'm not much of a scholar here. The, the in, injunction to worship no graven image and how that was taken very strongly also as a, as a um, commandment. And it could be taken literally as about not bowing down to an idol, but equally it's about how we elevate a graven image, how we make an image of something, whether in material or whether in our mind. And then we elevate it. That's what the worshipping does. We're making it into something more than just an image, than just an idea. We're seeking to say that this is really what it is. This is really it, in an ultimate sense, with a capital I. And to the injunction not to do that. And in the, in the Greek Orthodox Christian tradition, there's a, the whole way of practice, which is called via negativa. The way to God is via negativa. But by saying what God is not, by seeing and understanding what God is not, and letting go of that, one actually comes to understand God only by knowing, and only in our mind, we can only know what God is not. And this is perhaps rather similar to the, to the, um, the Buddhist way of dealing with this area in the, in the Dharma tradition with regard to Nibbana, the ultimate, the unconditioned. That it's spoken of as that which is not born, not conditioned, not compounded, not made. It's that in which there is no coming, no going, no standing still. And yet in all of that, all we know is what it is not. No attempt, and I think very wisely so, no attempt to say what it is. That even the Buddha was traditionally represented by footprints. Not an image of the Buddha, not a picture, not a statue, a rupa as they're called. But that a footprint was the way the Buddha's appearance in the world was denoted. And it was the footprint, and in the footprint was a wheel with eight spokes denoting the Eightfold Noble Path and representing as an image the teachings that the Buddha was known by having left the teachings. The mark of the Buddha was those teachings. 
And so no chance at all, one would imagine, of confusing the image of the Buddha, the picture of the Buddha, as being what ultimately the Buddha was, that ultimately what the Buddha represents. And it was 500 years before they actually ever made any images of the Buddha. And that was also somewhat to do with the influence of the Greeks and um, various other things. But um, Again, something I think important being communicated in that choice by the Buddha also, to not be represented by other than the fact of the teachings having been revealed. And as the Buddha said, who knows the Dharma knows the Buddha. Who knows the Buddha knows the Dharma. So not making it into anything. Not making the Buddha into someone or something any more than ultimate truth. Our spiritual practice, our exploration of what is possible for a human being very much embraces this in a way opening to opening our heart and mind to the to a, a really a non-conceptual, non-linear understanding, an experientially based realization, which is not caused by or the result of anything we can do. There's not a cause and effect relationship in awakening. It's, it's, if, if that were the case, it would be like saying that there are conditions which produce the unconditioned. And it's not really like that. It's, it's not the result of any cause. And yet there are conditions which give support to the process, which conduce to the process, which make more possible what is possible without actually saying that this is the cause, without making it happen. And amongst those conditions, perhaps two of the most profound and powerful that we do and can cultivate in our practice is to not pick and choose amongst our experience, to open to it all, to each and every moment of it, just as it is, and to not hold on to any idea of who I am, who you are, to not hold on to any idea of what all of this is and what it might be revealing. When we can do this, to hold to no view of self-definition, no view of what the ultimate truth of life is, it allows us, it opens us to the transforming wisdom that is within us. It allows our heart and mind to be receptive, to be open to the touch of that in which that which we cannot hold and yet that which the whole world that we know is effortlessly held by that we cannot grasp it, we cannot pick it up and yet we know its touch we sense it, we feel it, it moves our being and it's not unfamiliar to us it's not something that we can do it's a, an entry into this understanding. Concerned with constructing, with creating and becoming. That's all the eye knows, that's all that's possible for it. And yet, this realization is not an entry into, it's not a movement towards, it's not a creation 
or a constructing of anything. It's not of that order. It's much more the cessation, the letting go and the release of that which seeks, that which obscures, or that which seems to obscure, that which is to be discovered. So the whole process of I, I can't do it. The I can't do it, despite its best efforts, despite its yearning. And Chagyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, I thought rather beautifully, enlightenment is a real disappointment for the ego. Because it's not the ego that is enlightened. And yet the ego is not apart from that which is enlightened and light has shone upon it. And that really, it's not a doing, it's not a becoming, it's not a making. If it were any of that, it would be something coming into being and coming into being subject to passing from being. And that would be of no greater value to us than all the other things that come and go. That the the obscuration of the heart of wisdom, the deepest truth of life, is only an appearance of obscuration. It's never actually obscured. The sun is never actually obscured, except when we take the limited reference point of standing here, and this is where we are. But from the point of view of the universe, do the clouds obscure the sun? Not at all. And that this practice, this moment, and each moment is an invitation, is an opportunity to connect with the, the mystical and mysterious reality that is present in each moment, which could not be removed from it and which is closer to us than we can possibly believe. If we are present to what it is revealing, So can we sit quietly for a minute or two, please? May all beings see into life. May all beings see into truth. May all beings be touched by divine mystery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.